0: I've already mentioned that yesterday we had a wedding here at the church. Some of you have sore muscles that are reminding you of the wedding yesterday. And together, both in the the morning and in the evening, we celebrated together God's good gift of marriage. And we reminded ourselves of God's intention for marriage. We read the account of the first marriage in the Bible. We saw how that first marriage was not just a one-off, it was a blueprint for every marriage. After telling us about Adam coming together with Eve, Genesis chapter 2 says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. A true marriage involves a man and woman leaving other things and entering into a new exclusive relationship with each other. Only in that context, the Bible tells us, can there be true intimacy and true contentment. And the Bible goes on to tell us, human marriage pictures an even greater union. The union of God and his people. That's what we reminded ourselves of yesterday. Now this morning, we're going to look at the tragic flip side of what we saw yesterday. We're going to see what happens when one spouse abandons that exclusive unity. In recent weeks, we've been looking together at the book of Hosea. And if Genesis chapter 2 shows us the beauty of marriage commitment, Hosea shows us the ugliness of unfaithfulness. We've seen in previous weeks, this book deals with two broken marriages. On the human level, there's the marriage of the prophet Hosea to the prostitute Gomer. And that sad situation, the book tells us, is a living picture of God's relationship with unfaithful Israel. And we've noticed, too, that unfaithful Israel is a miniature version of unfaithful humanity. Just like Eve was created to enjoy intimacy with Adam... So humanity was created to share intimacy with God. But just like Gomer, and just like historical Israel, we have all chased after other lovers. So the message of Hosea is not just for ancient Israel. It's for all people at all times. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, The book of Hosea tells us a life of unfaithfulness to God is always a life of loss. We're going to pick up at chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll read through to the end of chapter 10. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 906 or in the large print 1409. Isaiah chapter 9, do not rejoice Israel, do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be to them like the bread of mourners. All who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. What will you do on the day of your appointed festivals, on the feast days of the Lord? Even if they escape from destruction, Egypt will gather them and Memphis will bury them. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars and thorns will overrun their tents. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many, And your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person a maniac. The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. They have sunk deep into corruption, as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them of everyone. Woe to them when I turn away from them. I have seen Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place. But Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. Give them, Lord, what will you give them? Give them wombs that miscarry and breasts that are dry. Because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted, their root is withered, they yield no fruit. Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations." Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful. And now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, we have no king because we did not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises, take false oaths, and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth-Avon. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests. Those who had rejoiced over its splendor, because it is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its foreign alliances. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. So I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors, the roar of battle will rise against your people, so that all your fortresses will be devastated, as Shalman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children. So it will happen to you, Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed." This is God's word. We said that a life of unfaithfulness to God is always a life of loss. And the first thing we're shown here is that unfaithfulness leads to loss of security. At this point in time, in Israel's history, Israel as a nation is not faithful to God. But, Israel still feels secure. And in chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, Hosea pinpoints two things that were making Israel feel secure. Her traditions and her possessions. He starts off with her traditions. We know that Hosea was active as a prophet for a period of years. So what we have in the book of Hosea is not just one sermon that he preached on one occasion. This is a collection of messages he delivered over a period of time. And commentators tell us the message beginning at chapter 9 verse 1 was probably delivered at a harvest celebration in Israel. A time of festivity when crowds were thronging around. And no doubt when that festival had originally been set up, the intention was to give thanks to Yahweh. That's the personal name of the God of the Bible. In our English Bibles, it's translated by the word Lord, all in capital letters. So the original idea of the festival was to give time for genuine worship of the true God. But by Hosea's time, it's just an excuse for a party. Hosea stands up in the middle of these crowds enjoying the festivities and he says to them, this is some party you're having. But you need to know it is not going to last. This party celebrating the new life of harvest, it's going to turn into a wake as you mourn the loss of all this. And verse 1 gives us the reason they're going to mourn. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. And we know from earlier in the book, the Israelites had never stopped tipping their hats to the Lord. They still kept up their sacrifices to Him. But they had come to see Baal and the other Canaanite gods as their true providers. So every threshing floor in the land had some kind of shrine to Baal or some kind of homage to Baal went on there just to make sure Baal kept on providing. And God says that spiritual prostitution can have only one outcome for you. Verse 2, threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be to them like the bread of mourners. All who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. Ephraim is another name for Israel. It was the largest tribe in the northern part of Israel. And through Hosea, God says the Israelites are going to be taken into exile. As we've seen up to this point, even though they're unfaithful, they've been able to keep up their religious traditions, sacrificing to the Lord, even sticking to those Old Testament food laws about clean and unclean food. Now, those things were no longer expressions of hearts that were devoted to the Lord, but it made Israel feel good to do those things. It made them feel safe. It's a bit like the way it makes many British people feel good to go to a carol service once a year, even though the words they sing actually mean nothing to them at all. Maybe some of us here this morning think that way about coming to church or saying a prayer. We feel safe if we keep up a bit of tradition. Even though we have no true commitment to God, we don't really know Him and we don't really live for Him. If that's the case for any of us, then we need to hear what God says through Hosea. He says to Israel, there is no security for you just because you keep up some religious traditions. Very soon you're going to end up in exile in Assyria. And there, your traditions are going to mean nothing at all. You'll have to eat unclean food in Assyria. And there'll be no opportunity there to bring sacrifices to the Lord because there will be no temple to bring your sacrifices to. Your traditions will melt away. And so the message is, if all you have is religious tradition without a commitment to listen to God and to obey Him, then you don't really have anything. If it's religious tradition that's making us feel secure, then it's a false security. It will not save us from God's judgment. And neither will our possessions. That's the other false security that God pinpoints here. Look down to the middle of verse 6 in chapter 9. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars, and thorns will overrun their tents. All those things they've worked so, so hard to gather together and accumulate in their lives are going to be left behind to rust and decay. This is a trap that gets people in every time and every place. The trap of turning away from God to seek our security in stuff. Listen to how one rider puts this in perspective for us. He asks us to imagine a journey. He says, take a ride with me. After a few miles, we turn off the road, pass through a gate and fall in line behind some pickup trucks. The vehicles ahead are filled with computers, stereo systems, furniture, appliances, fishing gear and toys. Higher and higher we climb until we reach a parking lot. There the drivers unload their cargo. Curious, you watch a man hoist a computer. He staggers to the corner of the lot, then hurls his computer over the edge. Now you've got to find out what's going on. You scramble out of the car and peer over the precipice. At the bottom of the cliff is a giant pit filled with stuff. Finally, you understand, this is landfill, a junkyard, the final resting place for the things in our lives. Sooner or later, everything we own ends up here. Christmas and birthday presents, cars, boats, and hot tubs, clothes, stereos, and barbecues, the treasures that children quarreled about, friendships were lost over, honesty was sacrificed for, and marriages broke up over all end up here. Ever seen the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins? Millions of people act as if it were true. The more accurate saying is, he who dies with the most toys still dies and never takes his toys with him. When we die after devoting our lives to acquiring things, we don't win, we lose. We move into eternity, but our toys stay behind, filling junkyards. The bumper sticker couldn't be more wrong. He who dies with the most toys still dies and never takes his toys with him. How is it that we can't see that a lot of the time? Well, you and I can't see it sometimes for the same reason that Israel couldn't see it. Look at verse 7. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool. The inspired person, a maniac. The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim. Yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. Israel didn't know how blessed she was to have prophets from God among her. Ancient cities had lookout posts built on the top of the city walls. And the watchman's job was to spot danger on the horizon and to warn the people in the city below. And that is the work Old Testament prophets did for Israel. They spotted spiritual danger and they called the people back to God. So the work of the prophets was a million times more valuable than watchmen who were just watching for enemy armies. The prophets pointed out what was most important. They announced what really mattered. But Israel had come to despise the warning of the prophets. They saw those men as fools and maniacs. They treated the prophets with hostility. And so, God's judgment will overwhelm Israel. While they are complacent in their traditions and fixated on their possessions, God's judgment will sweep them away. How can people think there is security in traditions or possessions? It's because they are not listening to God. If we listen to his word, we discover our desperate situation as human beings we discover that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We learn that the wages of sin is death. An eternal death. A death we cannot guard against with a bit of religious tradition and a heap of possessions. When we listen to God, we discover our only security is to have a living relationship with him a life of trust and dependence on him and we discover the only way to have that is through faith in Jesus Christ israel has lost security because of their unfaithfulness what else are they losing Fruitfulness. Chapter 10 to 13 of chapter 9 present us with a contrast. It starts in verse 10 with a picture of life. God says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Earlier in this book, God spoke about the days of Israel's youth. And he was referring there to the time when she came up out of Egypt, out of her slavery there. And that seems to be the reference point here as well. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, God says it was all so promising. Those events were like the first buds of a great harvest. If Israel had gone on to be faithful to God, if she'd given her heart to God, the fruit of that would have been beautiful. Great things would have come of it. The whole world would have been blessed through it. But in the years that followed the Exodus, Israel wandered from God. And in wandering from God, she lost her vitality. She gave up her fruitfulness. Look at the contrast in the second half of verse 10. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Not very long after the Exodus, the Israelites became involved in the worship of a false god called the Beal of Peor. That incident is recorded in Numbers chapter 25. And it set a pattern for Israel's future life of spiritual prostitution. And God says, that prostitution has caused Israel's fruitfulness to wither away. Commitment to me, God says, the living God would have meant a life that was filled with life, overflowing with life. But when Israel hooked up with a dead idol... She could do nothing but wither. How could things be any different? Give yourself to the source of life and you will radiate life. Give yourself to anything else and you're abandoning the source of life. You'll become unfruitful. Your efforts and your endeavors will ultimately amount to nothing at all. In the end, they will count for nothing at all. Things that look like achievements at the time will fade very quickly into insignificance. And to underline that reality, the next verses give us a description of unfruitfulness. Verse 11, Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them of every one. Woe to them when I turn away from them. I have seen Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place. But Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. What is this? This is God giving Israel the inevitable outcome of her choices. It would be the Assyrian armies who actually do this in history. But this is the result of turning away from the living God in order to live for things that have no life in themselves. And this is not saying that every single Israelite child is going to die. This is saying Israel as a nation is going to shrivel up. This people that used to be thriving like grapes in the desert is going to wither away. They will become just as insubstantial as the things that they love and crave. And if your life is going to count, if mine is going to count, it has to be lived in relationship with the God of life. Otherwise, our life's achievements are just like sand castles on the beach. In very little time, they disappear. People who are not connected to the source of life are people without fruitfulness. And ultimately, they're people without hope. That's another result of a life of unfaithfulness, the loss of hope. In verse 14, Hosea, who is conveying this message from God, he finds himself stuck. He breaks into this message from God in order to pray for his people Israel. But what is Hosea going to pray for? Is he going to pray for deliverance? But there can be no deliverance unless Israel turns back to God. As things stand, the best, the very best that Hosea can do is to pray for no more Israelite children. That way they will be spared what's coming on Israel. And so that's what he asks for in verse 14. Give them, Lord, what will you give them? Give them wombs that miscarry and breasts that are dry. Hosea knows he can't pray for mercy. Mercy is for those who seek mercy. And Israel is not seeking it. That's why the word of God comes in verse 15. Because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. Earlier God mentioned a notorious incident of idolatry from Israel's past. Baal of Peor. And here he mentions another, Gilgal. And God looks back to that time and he says... I hated them there. How can God say that? Well, the background to this was given to us in verse 10. In worshipping shameful idols, things that took God's place, the Israelites became as vile as the thing they loved. God says, When Israel abandoned me, the only true source of life When she consecrated herself to dead, sinful things, to loving those things, she became dead and sinful like those things. And sin deserves my wrath and my hatred. The God who hates sin stands in opposition to those who love sin. How could he do otherwise? And so there is no hope for those who persist in their rebellion against God. The Bible doesn't gloss over that reality the way that you and I do sometimes. In Israel's case, as we've seen, this is not saying there will be no more Israelite children. It's not saying every Israelite child will be killed. One commentator says, these verses are depicting the end of the nation as they knew it. The corrupt society of Hosea's day was to come to an end, never to be restored. The glory that it contributed to its false pride and its rebellion against God would perish. And in the verses that follow, we hear how every one of Israel's false hopes will be torn down. God says the altars and sacred stones, which were not places of worship for the true God, those altars and sacred stones will be demolished and destroyed. Its calf idol that's so cherished will be taken away. Israel's king that she looked to to build foreign alliances Her king will not be able to protect her. Look how the king is described down in chapter 10, verse 7. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars then they will say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. That's a picture of utter hopelessness. And this would be fulfilled not long after Hosea spoke these words. The Assyrian armies arrived and Israel's society was swept away. Along with Israel's king, like a twig on the surface of the waters. But the New Testament tells us the fulfillment of these words in 722 BC, that was just a rehearsal for something far more terrible. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the Apostle John is shown a vision of the end of time. And he tells us the words of Hosea chapter 10 will be even more appropriate on that future day. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us, from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? We recoil sometimes when we read the Old Testament descriptions of God's judgment. But the New Testament tells us those outbreaks of judgment in history, those were just rehearsals for the judgment at the end of history. There was no hope for the Old Testament Israelites who looked for their security in things other than God. Who gave their love to things other than God. And there is no hope for anyone who lives that way. Hosea has a bleak message to deliver, but the bleakness is not pointless. It's never bleak just for the sake of being bleak. Israel might not be listening to Hosea. They might think he's a maniac. They might be hostile to him. But remember, Hosea is Israel's watchman. He's doing his job of warning Israel so they can turn to God and be saved. And now Hosea announces to Israel there is a way back. It's described in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 10. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. So I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. It takes a bit of work for us to understand the picture here. Verse 11 could be translated a couple of different ways. But what God is saying in these two verses seems to be this. Ephraim, remember that's Israel, was never meant to go her own way. If we think of Israel as a farmyard animal, she is a trained heifer. She was never meant to be a law unto herself. She was meant to wear my harness, God says. That's what a yoke is. It's a kind of collar that allows a farmer to guide animals in their work. God says Israel was meant to wear my yoke and work my land. Just like back in the Garden of Eden, Adam was meant to work and take care of my garden under my guidance and my authority. And that work would have been a joy for Israel as it would have been a joy for Adam. Just like the work of threshing is a joy for a heifer. Treading out grain is light and rewarding work. But God says, Israel shrugged off my yoke. Back in chapter 4 we were told she is like a stubborn heifer. And so now, her situation is harder. She threw off my yoke to find freedom, but now the going has become very, very tough. Like plowing and breaking up hard, stony ground. Instead of threshing corn that's already been gathered in. Israel's situation is going to be like Adam's after he rebelled against God. Instead of his work being a joy, it became painful toil for him. In Israel's case, that's going to mean exile and oppression under foreign powers. But, God says, if Israel will seek the Lord in her tough situation, if she'll long for righteousness instead of loving rebellion, if she will value God's unfailing love, instead of the false loves she's been chasing, if she will allow her hard heart to break, then, verse 12, God will come to her and shower his righteousness on her. So the message is not, make yourself righteous. The message is, run to the righteous one. He will make you what you were meant to be. He will love you back to life again. He will love you until you are as beautiful as he is. That is the opportunity God gives to unfaithful people. But in Israel's case, the outcome was tragic. She did not turn and run to the lover of her soul. Verses 13 to 15 tell us she carried right on in wickedness, evil, and deception. She continued to look to insecure things for her security. Her warriors, her fortresses, and her king. And the history books tell us how that worked out for Israel. She was devastated and destroyed as a nation. That is how it works out, not just for every nation, but for every individual who sets their heart on things other than God. But God's word is a living word. And so the stubbornness of Israel comes as a warning to stubborn people today. The call to seek the Lord is a call for people today. And so every Christian is like a watchman, just as Hosea was. People might think that we're fools, that we're maniacs when we talk about sin and judgment and the need to trust in Jesus. They might even become hostile to us. But we have good news for them. Verse 12, sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love. And break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord. Until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. In the end, a life of unfaithfulness can only be a life of loss. But today, those who seek the lover of their souls can truly begin to live. And we don't find life by trying to go our own way. We find it by coming under the authority of Jesus Christ. Looking to him as our savior from sin and submitting to him as the Lord of our lives. Jesus Christ is the one who said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We live in a world that has got no true security and no real fruitfulness and no genuine hope at the end of the day. But in the midst of that we have a message of life and fulfillment and rest in Jesus Christ. So as we have opportunity let's share that message. And let's each of us make sure the message is alive in our own hearts. We're going to help each other do that by singing And the song we're going to sing reminds us what it means to be a Christian. It means we have an acceptance with God we could never have deserved. And we have a new life, living to serve him. The one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. We're going to sing King of Kings, Majesty.